0: You're listening to The Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father Lord, we thank you that we can come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. I'm singing your praises this morning. We thank you that through Christ, we have the ability to come before you. And Lord, through Christ, we know the Father who loves us and who has shown us such amazing grace. and God, now I pray you'd help us to sit at your feet to learn from your word. Now, Lord, this message is um, its a hard one. It goes against the grain of our culture and against much of what your flesh would want. And so, God, I pray that you would give grace this morning for us to hear well. Lord, I pray you give boldness that the truth can be declared unapologetically. And God, I pray that you give your love so that everything that is said this morning is said from a heart that desires to show the love and the grace that Christ shows us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that all of us are sinners and that we are all welcomed at the foot of the cross. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10. I began to follow Christ. I got saved when I was 16 years old. And the church that I was saved into was a conservative, Bible-believing church. And I'm thankful for so much of what that church was and what it represented and what it taught me in my life. However, looking back, I know that the Pharisee inside of me quickly began to believe that our church was basically the only church. I mean, not the only church total, but the church that had kind of the corner on the truth, the church that that really did all the things that the Bible wanted us to do, and that other churches were doing okay, they were doing fine, but they they just needed more of what our church had. And so, at 17 years old, I took this attitude on vacation with me to California, where I attended a church there with my family. And I remember walking into that church building, 17-year-old, been saved for a year, assuming that I had figured out all of what the church was supposed to be. (laughs) And I walked in and I saw, man, they have some really modern decorating in here. That's bad. They're serving coffee. That's bad. Their auditorium has a little slant to it, and that's bad. (laughs) And they use more than just a piano for their worship services. That's really bad. (laughs) This is what I was thinking. You can imagine what my attitude was like as the man got up to give the word. I was already assuming that it would be bad. And he announced his title, and I could not believe that he was about to speak about the subject of divorce. Because divorce is not a seeker-friendly subject. It's one that you try and avoid. And so, so I was amazed for a moment, and then I thought, you know what? He probably has some divorced people in his congregation, and he just wants to tickle their ears. So he's just going to tell them that, you know, it's, it's all good, no big deal, don't worry about it. And I was dead wrong. And so God used this message, I was 17, I hadn't been divorced, but God used this message on divorce in my life to actually convict me about my judgmentalism. He preached a message that was biblically faithful and full of love and grace. It was a wonderful, God-glorifying message on divorce. And so we'll be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, and I do want you to know that I've been in the book of Mark on Sunday evenings for eight months already. And we came kind of to this, and pastor had asked me to preach the Sunday morning. And I even talked to him a couple weeks ago, and I said, Hey, pastor, just so you know, this is where we land. I said, Do you want me to try and do something about that? Like, split last week into two weeks. And I was like, No, last week I was on hell. So, <laughs> so do I just, like, skip? And he was like, The Lord knows, right? This is, this is what we do as a church. We walk through the whole counsel of God. And so this is where we land this morning. Um, My goals this morning is to faithfully teach the Word of God on the subject of marriage and divorce. I want to be true to the text, unapologetically true to what the Bible says. And I hope to do it in a way that shows love and grace toward those who have had a divorce or have been directly impacted by divorce in their family. Because I know that that is a lot of us. I know that there are many people sitting here today that have either gone through divorce or have been seriously impacted by divorce in their family. And so just like that guy did, what was that, 17 years ago, I hope to do the same, teach about divorce with love and grace. Um, Mark's gospel, up until this point, has focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the problems of Galilee. And in Mark 10, it kind of begins this new chapter in Jesus' ministry as he heads up to Judea. And so we will see this first kind of new chapter in the province of Judea as he heads in Mark chapter 11 toward the cross. In Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we'll begin reading. And he, Jesus, arose from thence, and he came into the coast of Judea by the farther side of the Jordan. And the people resorted unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. So Jesus enters in Judea, and we find out, that once again, which is common in the book of Mark, as Jesus goes somewhere, the people follow in droves. And so huge crowds are gathering together. And I love the phrase that as he was wont, or, or as he was accustomed to, as he did all the time, he taught them again. It shows the emphasis of Jesus. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he did a ton of wonderful, different, exciting things. But the thing that he always did, the thing that he always came back to, was teaching the people. Why? Because he knew that they were as sheep without a shepherd. That what they needed more than all of those signs and wonders was the word of God. So that's what he gave them. At this point, he is interrupted by the Pharisees. And this is another common occurrence. The Pharisees were always showing up, not with the attitude that they wanted to learn, not with the attitude that they wanted to grow or, or, or see what Christ was and really honestly assess him. They were always showing up because they wanted to find a way to discredit him. It was their goal, already established at this point, to kill Jesus. They were just looking for the opportunity. And so here they are once again. Verse 2, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And they said this, tempting him. And so they have a strategy to this question. Like it is today, back then, divorce was a hot topic. The reason being was that even though Genesis was very clear that God is the one that created marriage, that he created man and woman to come together, to leave father and mother and to cleave to one another, that they are to be joined together and, and nothing should put that asunder. That, that They understood that God was behind the whole structure of marriage in the family. They also knew that Deuteronomy 24 gave them a way out. And so Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 1 says, When a man has taken a wife and he's married her, and it comes to pass that, no, that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it to her hand, and send her out of his house. And so here is where the debate lies. Rather than focusing on God's design for marriage and that that's the plan and that's what they should go with, they find the one exception clause in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24 verse 1. And the debate is around the word uncleanness. What does it mean? There was two groups. One was the teachings of Rabbi Hillel, the school of Hillel. This was more the liberal group. And he taught that this unclean or indecent thing was simply anything that he didn't like. And so if she made a dinner and burned it a little bit too much, that's indecent. That's unclean. That's a reason to divorce. If she argued with you, it's a reason to divorce. Really, any reason could be brought up as being indecent or unclean. And Rabbi Hillel says, she's gone. You have fair reason to divorce her. There was another group, the school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai. And they taught that uncleanness meant some type of sexual misconduct. There's something that was unclean, indecent, sexually happening in order for this exception clause to work. Matthew here is more specific, and we uh, Andrew read that just earlier. It's, they asked the question: Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? So Matthew makes it clear that they were they were getting at this. What's the cause? They knew there was a cause. What is it? And so obviously Jesus' answer is going to isolate him from a group of Jews, at least. If you bring up a controversial subject, and you know that half the crowd thinks one thing, and half the crowd thinks the other thing, and you put somebody on the spot and ask them to answer, what you're doing is you're saying, I want you to identify with this half or this half, resulting in the fact that the other half will begin to dislike Jesus. That's what they're going for. So Jesus answers in verse 3. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? Do you notice what Jesus does there? He says, what does the Bible say? Here's Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, who uses the Old Testament scripture as his authority. What does the Bible say? What's the original answer? And when they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. So they quote Deuteronomy 24.1, but not in its entirety. They say, well, Moses said you could divorce her. They didn't say for what exception, what cause. And so again, I think Jesus is brilliant. Because he does not get into this argument of semantics. Instead, he goes bigger. He looks at the big picture. He looks at the goodness of God and his plan for mankind. And he looks at the sinfulness of man and the necessary provisions that God made for us. In verse 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote this to you, this precept to you, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall become one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus says, guys, you have to understand, the reason divorce exists is because of the hardness of your heart. It is because of mankind is so sinful that this provision was necessary. It does not make it good. It does not make it part of God's original design and original plan. It was necessary because we are sinners. And this is what God's plan for marriage is. That a man would leave his home, that he would leave his father and mother, that he would be joined to his wife, creating a new family, a new home. I want us to understand this morning that the church, I mean, we're in a confusing time, a confusing culture, but the church should be able to speak with clarity and authority on the subject of marriage because our God designed it. He gave the rules for it. right? We don't have the luxury of redefining it. Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter what the laws of the land say. Marriage is what God said it is because he made it. And so God joins two human beings together in a covenant that is more powerful than our culture understands. I, I was thinking about marriage a lot this week, the marriage retreat, um, but getting ready for this as well. And, and I think... Within our culture, it's almost like step one, ask them on a date. Step two, understand that this is boyfriend and girlfriend. Step three is propose marriage. And step four is get married. And it's kind of like this, just the next step of romance, right? It's not thought of this like serious covenant that you make before God. It isn't just another step of romance, It's not just a public declaration of love. Though you do that, that's not not all it is. This is something mysterious that happens when people, with a volition of their will, like it's not, I want you to know that I will have you as long as I feel like it, as long as you please me, as long as everything's going well, as long as we're rich, as long as we're healthy, as long as we're, helping each other achieve the dreams and successes that we both want. It is actually removing all of those possible conditions. It's, I will do this no matter what. Sickness, health, better, worse, richer, poorer, love, cherish, till death do us part. That's what we say. That's how marriage is designed to work. There is no feeling language. And so Jesus defines marriage as God's design... Male and female, heterosexual. It is to create a new family. And it is to be lifelong. That's God's design for marriage. And and I think it's important to realize that when Jesus is confronted with this question where people are looking for a way out, his first response is to go back to the big picture and say, this is what it's supposed to be. Then in verse 10, it says, in the house, the disciples asked him again of the matter. And I think this makes sense because the disciples are curious. They want to, they want to I mean, just like we're curious. Yeah, okay, I get it. But, but what about, what about this situation? Or what about this? Or, Jesus, help me understand the details. And so they asked him again. And he said unto them, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. So Jesus, he doesn't really back down. He doesn't really back off of them. Once again, they want further clarification. It's a good idea for the children of God to seek clarification. I think this was a positive attribute of the disciples. I wish more people would ask questions when they had them. And we don't know exactly what question they answered, but what they asked, but Jesus' answer is fairly straightforward. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he's committed adultery against her. And if a woman does the same, she is committed adultery. And so, here is the text. It's a tough text, right? I understand there are some visitors here this morning. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But I'm not. I mean, this is the Word of God, right? And so we are not doing our job as believers in Christ, followers of Christ. If we come to a passage like this, and we skip past it without any kind of application, without any kind of soul searching and trying to figure out what God wants us to believe. And so how is this passage helpful for us today? When the problems of this world are distinct from the problems within the church, it is very easy for the church to deal with those problems. It's easy for us to be inside these walls and saying, can you believe the world does this? That's terrible. That's awful. It's, it's easy to, to judge that sin, to be judgmental even. But we are all aware this morning that the problems of the world are the problems of the church in this area. right? That many of God's children have not been immune from divorce. And so once again, I recognize that there are people here today that have gone through the pain of a divorce I want you to know that nothing that I'm saying today is meant to heap coals on your head. There's, there's no kind of, you're here today, you've been divorced, I'm preaching a message to make sure you have the scarlet letter on your back. I understand that, that much of what we've gone through, and I'm not just talking about divorced people, so much of my past, I wish I could change. I've made some bad decisions. There are things that I've done that I, I really regret. There's pain that is in my past. And so I know that that things don't turn out the way we hoped, the way we want, and we look back and we have regrets. That's true for all of us. And so all any of us can do now is to learn from our past, to confess our sin to the God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that is what we're hoping to accomplish today. I also want to make it clear that the church ought to be a place where divorcees can find grace and healing. This should be a place where you can be divorced and come to and feel like you're accepted because you are one of 100% of people who are sinners, saved by God's grace. I think the church desperately needs a fuller and more biblical understanding of both marriage and divorce. And so what I want to do today is walk through four steps, hopefully, toward that end. Step number one, we must see the big picture. We must see the big picture. Just like Jesus stepped back and he started painting the big picture, we need to do the same thing. And part of our problem is we need to understand that we grow up in a society that is kind of more and more embracing divorce. A hundred years ago, that was not the case, but today it is. The divorce rate is much higher than it was a hundred years ago. I found it interesting, though, that the divorce rate is similar to what it was 30 years ago. That, that we've kind of leveled off, and we're staying at first-time marriages about 40% chance of divorce, second time 60, and third time 73%. So, so on average, 50% of d- marriages end in divorce. The no-fault divorce laws have made this much easier. The destigmatization of divorce has allowed couples to end their divorce without any kind of guilt or shame or at least less. And I found it interesting that people say that the number one cause of their divorce, nearly 50% of divorces, is basic incompatibility. And so they divorce because they weren't right for each other. In fact, accepting divorce as normal and even a courageous act is becoming more and more popular. Uh, There's a book written by John Adam and Nancy Williamson. It's called Divorce, How and When to Let Go. And this is what they say. They say, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and their lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing that you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. And so marriages come to an end because life changes, people grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, fulfilling, problem-solving, positive, growth-oriented, a personal triumph. It is a very different picture from what the Bible speaks of when it speaks about divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, 16, it says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, said that he hates putting away. For one covers violence with his garment, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. This is all said clearly in the context of a marriage. And what he's saying is, I hate divorce because you're trying to cover your violence or your, your cruelty or your sin with a garment. You've got this ugliness and rather than dealing with it, you're just putting something over top of it. And so he says, do not be unfaithful to your spouse. And so here the Pharisees are seeking to pin Jesus into one of two categories and instead Jesus backs up and he shares God's good plan for marriage. And I think that's the right place for us to start. Men and women leaving and cleaving, becoming one flesh in a lifelong monogamous relationship. The marriage retreat is a helpful reminder that marriage is really hard and it's really beautiful when it's done well. And God's plan is really beautiful and really good when it's done well. And so, this exception that's given by God through Moses is not a good part of God's plan. It is a necessary concession given because of the sinfulness of mankind. Okay, Now, that's not to say that this is the only time this happens. I was thinking about it, and I thought, there are two laws. If we were to keep those two laws, we would fulfill the whole law, right? Love God, love your neighbor. So why are the Ten Commandments necessary? Well, Because we don't love God and love our neighbor or because we try and find reasons not to. And so he gives more specific commandments, almost concessions to say, well, this is specifically what that looks like. And then there's 513 others. What, what are those about? It's just teasing all of those other things out. right? And so so much of the law that's given to us is because we're sinful and we look for ways around it and, and, and it doesn't work out and we make messes. Because we've got to understand that sin, God hates sin not because he's against our joy. God hates sin because he knows what destruction it causes. He knows the messes he causes. And here's the beautiful thing. That God steps into the mess that we've made to help us work it out. That's actually what Deuteronomy 24 chapter 1 is. is God stepping into a mess that's been made and trying to find a way to work it out. And so God's original plan is good. We are sinners who mess up his good plans. He is willing to help us through the messes that we make. And we serve a God who brings beauty from our ashes. And So please keep that in mind as we speak about divorce. And so, we must see the big picture. Step number two, we must seek clarification. Pharisees come with this question from Deuteronomy 24.1. The allowance for divorce is the basis of uncleanness. And here in Mark, Mark doesn't really deal with the exception at all. The book of Matthew, we read, does deal with the exception to an extent. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, it says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. So Matthew recognizes that Jesus, when he was speaking, he did mention the idea that if, if there was fornication, if there was adultery, then that was a legitimate cause for divorce. Second exception we find in the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, Paul has just dealt with the subject of marriage and then clearly he comes to, but what if it's not working out? And in this church, in in 1 Corinthians, the church of Corinth is, is a worldly sinful church. And they're recognizing the problem that what if a person gets saved and now they're in a relationship with a person who's not a believer in Christ and they're a believer in Christ, is it legitimate at that point for them to say okay, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm out. I'm going to leave, right? My spouse isn't a believer, and so he's trying to help them work through that difficult situation. In 1 Corinthians 7:12, he says, "But to the rest I speak, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, Let him not put her away. And the woman, which has a husband and believes not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So if your spouse doesn't believe, but they're content to dwell with you, they want to stay in that marriage, then you should stay. And he goes on to explain that part of the reason you stay is that your lifestyle, your conversation, your godliness, will lead them to repentance. Your prayers, I mean, all of your life should be surrounding the idea that you're trying to live in a way that helps that person come to know Christ as their Savior. But you don't leave. You don't quit at that point. But what happens if the unbelieving spouse wants out? And he deals with that in verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so, in that case, if the unbelieving partner wants to leave, wants out, then the brother or sister, the believer in Christ, is no longer under bondage in those cases. Now, these are two exceptions that the New Testament gives. There are thousands of questions that people have like, well, what happens in situations of abuse? Or what about pornography? Or what about all of these other questions we have? And, and, and we clearly don't have time this morning to go through every potential question. That is something that it's really, you got to see God's face and his wisdom and, and godly counsel to work through. But I think it's important to understand that here, we are, there, there is given a time and a place where this divorce clause, this exception, is to come into play. Okay. Again, we're not saying it's God's original design and original plan, but there is a place for divorce. There, it's possibly to be a Christian and to be divorced. One more question that comes up that I think is worth addressing, then we'll move on. What happens if a Christian gets a divorce or maybe they weren't even saved before they got the divorce and then they want to get married to another person however they didn't get divorced for any good reason it wasn't clearly wasn't one of the exception clauses and the question is is that second marriage a legitimate marriage is it a marriage that should be upheld by the church and i would say that when G, when jesus speaks he says that if you marry another you've committed adultery Okay, so Jesus made it clear that you can't just do that. That's not, that's not his plan. However, I think that when that new covenant has been made, when when that person has now been joined, that is it's not a continual act of adultery forever, I think that, that at that point the church should come around this new couple who's covenanted together and try and help them have a marriage that glorifies God. That's where that's what I think. So I just wanted to deal with that because I think it is a really important question. Um, so we should seek clarification, and, and I would encourage you if you're still questioning things, seek further clarification. The third step is that we should trust and obey God. Okay. Sometimes we have we go into problems with the attitude. I know God is gracious. I know He's forgiving. So I'm going to do what I want. And then later on turn to him to be forgiven. Right? And you know what? God is gracious and he's merciful and he's forgiving. But we got to go to Paul in Romans and he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And so I, before we get to all of the grace that God shows to divorce people or to, or to sinners in general, let's just stop for a second and say, we serve a God who loves us, who created us. We serve a God who is in heaven, who has a good plan for us, and his plan is better than my plan. I feel different things all the time. If I was to act on all my feelings, I would be a complete mess. Like I would ruin everything good in my life. So God's plan is better than my plan. And if we would recognize that now and say, okay, life going forward, I understand now God's take on marriage. Let's do the marriage I'm in as well as I possibly can if that's how we thought about it let's let's not divorce if it's if it's possible then I think we'd be a lot better off we should trust and obey understand god is not anti-divorce because he wants you to stay unhappy he is anti-divorce because he is pro-marriage and because his plan is best in isaiah chapter fifty five verse nine for says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We ought to trust and obey the God who made us. Step number four, receive grace and be gracious. Jesus, with love and kindness, dealt in very stark truth. This is a hard passage to hear. But do you understand that the same Jesus who spoke these words also went to the woman who had five husbands and was with a man who was not her current husband. And do you know what he did? He offered her his living water. Right? He showed her love and grace. He didn't spend the entire time condemning her and making her feel like she was unworthy. He actually showed her that though she might be a sinner, she was still Invited to come to him. Invited to have the living water that would keep her alive forever. And so Jesus, who spoke so seriously about divorce, shows adulterous people incredible love. And and can I tell you something? Part of the reason I think we have such a problem with this is because we've put adultery on, on like this sin that's above all other sins. And just the Bible doesn't do that. There's no, like, adultery, divorce, and then everything else. It it is sinner, sinner, sinner. We'll see that in a second. And so, uh, I want just to remind you of the story in John chapter 8. When a group of men, self-righteous, religious men, find Jesus in the temple, and they literally have taken a woman in the act of adultery and they've brought her before Jesus and thrown her at his feet. So, can you imagine what this woman is right now enduring? And this is what they say to Jesus. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Hey Jesus, I mean they're trying to they're trying to trick him again. They're trying to attack him again. Jesus, the law says stone her. What do you think? And what does Jesus do? He gets on the ground, probably down at the level she's at, and then he starts writing in the ground, not looking at them. And then he says these words. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And do you know what he did when he did that? He removed that adultery and then everything else. Because he said, sin, sin. If you don't have any sin, because she's just sin, clearly. If you don't have any sin, if you're not at a different level than her, go ahead, cast the first stone. And they left, the oldest to the youngest, realizing how sinful they were. Because nobody has the right to cast stones. And then Jesus, who had the right to cast stones, who was sinless and pure, Said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So Jesus, given the opportunity to execute judgment against this woman, shows her grace. What right do we not to have to not show grace? Divorced Christians do not wear a scarlet D. Jesus took that sin, the sin of adultery and divorce and All of the rest, pride and lying and selfishness and lust and dishonoring God, he took all those sins to the cross. There is grace for you, whoever you are, whatever you've done. There isn't a sin beyond the grace of God. He died for all sin and for all sinners. Jesus always spoke the truth but it was always done in love, and his people must do the same. We must be willing to step out and help those who are battle-scarred, help those who have struggled, who have sinned in whatever area it is. Um, We must lose the judgmentalism that may have characterized our past. We ought to show love and grace and forgiveness, because we must recognize that the love and the grace and forgiveness that we're called to show all people, is the same love and grace and forgiveness that we needed. That that nobody stands at a different place at the foot of the cross. right? There aren't sinners made worse than us. And so I want to close today. And and listen, I think stepping back, seeing the big picture, seeing God's plan for marriage, seeking clarification, saying, okay, here's the nuts and bolts of it. But then recognizing that wherever we're at, we need to trust God and obey him. And then being willing to show grace and forgiveness. I think if if the church did that, we would be in a better spot when it comes to this issue of marriage and divorce, and honestly, a better spot with everything. And so I'll close with 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers. Okay, so he begins there. But do you know what else is included in that list of fornicators and adulterers? Thieves and covetous. So if, if you're a person who's just kind of, you really want things that aren't rightfully yours ever? right? You're a person who maybe has taken something once or twice that didn't belong to you. That's all of us. So none of us shall inherit the kingdom of God on our own. That's, that's the point. And he puts adulterers right beside the covetous. And then he said, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word, how it speaks so clearly. God, as we look at the Bible, we don't find a book that whitewashes our sin. We don't find a book that tickles our ears and, and helps us just to think that we're okay as we are. We find a book that that points out our sin and calls it what it is. But we also find a Jesus who have come who has come to, to make us clean, to take the sin that characterizes our lives upon himself. That you have taken the wrath of God that we deserved, and you've showed us only grace. And so, God, I pray you'd help us to recognize that. Lord, if there are people here today that have gone through divorce, I pray that they would see that they have grace at the cross, that that they have been forgiven by Christ, that they ought not hold anything against themselves that you don't hold against them. And God, I pray for those of us who have maybe not been divorced, help us to show grace. Um, Lord, help us to realize our need for grace in every other area. Uh, God, I pray that this would just be a place that is truthful, but that we are loving and gracious and merciful toward others. Help us to be a place that sinners can come and find healing. And then, Lord, help us to take the advice of Jesus that once we have been lavished with the grace of God, that we will get up and go and sin no more. And, Lord, when we sin again, help us to get up and go and sin no more. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.